we'll have a, a, a leadership team retreat or a huddle or whatever. We'll say, what is the worst way that we fail to look like Jesus right now? And let's spend a season attacking that worst way and make it better. So that the next season, that won't be the worst way anymore, but there'll be a new worst way. There'll be something else now at the bottom of it. And let's try to clean that up. Well, friends, welcome back to the Space for Faith podcast, where we are having conversations, where we're reimagining the church for our current moment. And you just heard from my friend, Jeff Lockyer, who we're going to get to hear from here in just a few moments. And Jeff, Jeff actually leads one of the largest churches in Canada. And I think Jeff is super fascinating. I think there's really interesting things in this interview. And this might be a, a little bit different than maybe what you might normally experience on here, that while I'm always trying to create uh, conversations that those of you who are in church leadership in some sort of way, whether you're a pastor or artist or other kind of church leader, like something that you can uh, think about, wrestle through, bring to your team and sort of work through, Jeff, like uh, Jeff really exists a lot in the church leadership space and really thrives in that space. But the way that he approaches it and thinks about it, it is so refreshing to me in so many ways. And I think you're really going to appreciate it. He'll, he'll talk about one of the more interesting things that I've been thinking about. I actually, we recorded this like two months ago or something. And I've been thinking about since we recorded this, that he talks about a way that they sort of like close the gap. I, I've been thinking of it as closing the gap leadership and I'll let him explain that, but that's super fascinating. They are a kind of church. I'll mention this in the interview where they're doing a lot of similar outward things to large churches, but it's totally, it's actually totally different. The, the internalization of it is different. He describes it as, as, you know, dealing with the wine and the wine skins and the wine skins might look similar to what you'd experience from some other large churches. But what's going on in the wine actually is quite a bit different for a lot of them. Things like uh, the way you'll hear him talk about the anchor causes that they establish when they do multi-sites. Or even like the, the, their budget, that 71% of the money that passes through their doors goes towards justice causes, things outside of them. And I think like his approach is going to be so helpful for a lot of us. He talks about not just the the problem and he talks about not just like the heart of something but then he talks about like operationalizing it and that language was maybe for some of you will rub you the wrong way a little bit at first but i would actually encourage you to hang in through it because the idea that he pushes out there of us taking something that we care about that we want to see out in the world and like actually operationalizing it so that it can be done well so that it can flourish so that it can grow and spread so that more of that can happen like is so helpful that the other thing I'd encourage you to pay attention to is listen to the way that he talks about issues in his own church that they're dealing with, like gaps that they need to close. And even just listen to the way that he talks about it, how he can recognize those issues and things that they need to do about it without it being personally attacking to him. Like that's a secure person, not just a secure leader, a secure person, a mature person that even though his leadership it's a part of what's created the issue that's there. It's good, mature leadership then for him to be able to look at it and say, we got to do something with this and to not just take that there's a problem there as a personal attack or something that he's got to be defensive about. So anyways, I, I love Jeff. I think the world of him, I think what he's doing is some great stuff. So I'm excited for you to get to hear from him. 
Before we jump into that, just another quick reminder that prices are going up soon for our post-evangelical collective gathering that's happening in October in Denver. We'll put a link to it in the show notes to where you can register for it. I would love to see you there. It's going to be such an important time of gathering with other like-minded leaders who feel ecclesiologically homeless, don't really know where you fit, maybe in the church world, you have felt excluded from spaces, maybe where you used to have a tribe, you no longer have a tribe. And so we're just trying to create a space for you to be able to meet other like-minded church leaders, to learn from one another, to learn from some world-class voices, and to develop some community and experience some rest. So. Would love to see you there October 11th and 12th in Denver, Colorado. Now let's go ahead and move into our time here with Jeff. Well, we have Jeff Lockyer joining us today. And Jeff, you are the senior pastor of Southridge Community Church in the Ontario region of Canada. Is that all? Is that all? Did I say that all right? That's pretty correct. I live in the Niagara region, the Niagara uh, region of Ontario, Canada. So I'm about an hour from Toronto on the south side of Lake Ontario and about 20 minutes from Niagara Falls, just to orient people to where I live. How often do you end up at Niagara Falls? Almost never. <laughs> I end up Is it like I, just a tourist trap? Like yes, that's the deal. Yes. Okay. My my teenage kids love going down there and hanging out because it's a tourist trap. And there's a restaurant that my wife and I will go to. And we've had uh, staff Christmas parties there from time to time that, that kind of has the, the best falls view. So okay. it's, it's, you know, it's like 20 stories up and it's right over top of the falls. It's this spectacular view. So we go there from time to time. But other than that, they, they have, there's this little path that you can drive through at Christmas time where you can kind of go see the lights, but yeah, other than that, if uh, unless someone from out of town is in town and wants to go see the falls, we're never there. That's that's the case for anyone wherever you live that like here's the famous thing that's here yeah. that I never actually do anything with except for when somebody out of town comes in because they want to see that thing. Yeah, it's like I, I lived in Toronto for five years when I was in school and uh, never once went to the top of the CN Tower. I, was, I don't even know what that is. That's how American I am. Yeah, everyone just that? assumed. It's the Canadian version of the Empire State Building. Okay. Big tall building you go to the top of. Got it. Got it. Well, okay. So you're leading this church, which um, is a super fascinating church. So I want folks to get to like learn a little bit about it. But I thought it would be interesting because I remember you didn't just, you, you didn't always intend to be a pastor, did you? Do I remember that right? Like, I'm curious about your journey to becoming a pastor. Yeah, that's pretty right. Uh, I remember you talking about going to school for architecture and uh, I went to university for engineering. Okay. So I tell people I majored in track and field. I was a competitive long distance runner. I competed on the Canadian national team for a few years, ran in a couple world championships uh, for cross country. So I was pretty hardcore and uh, grew up since I was 10 years old, grew up as part of a, a, a certain faith community that if I was home on weekends or at Christmas or whatever, I would, I would continue to go with my family, but in university church, at least, and faith to a large degree was, was not a high priority, but I would say by the time, by the time I was moving home after university to try to get myself out of some debt, live in my parents' basement for a little while, the best way to put it is I, I just didn't like who I was becoming. 
Hmm. I, I just didn't like the person I was becoming. And, and so, you know, part of kind of new patterns was, was engaging to a greater degree. I don't want to say re-engaging, but to engaging to a greater degree in the church that I'd grown up in. And, uh, that in, involved at the time starting to volunteer in the student ministry. And I mean, we had youth leaders and all this kind of stuff, but I was just a kind of volunteer helper. Part of the, part of the crudeness of that was I'd applied to law school and, and, uh, didn't manage to get in in part because I had no volunteer experience on my resume. So no. I was trying to, at some level, even sort of pad the resume with a little sure. bit of volunteer experience, whatever. All of these, all of these terrible things that God, I hope, redeemed. And uh, so I did that for a, a couple of years and was tracking, you know, more and more with the church. And uh, eventually it was uh, a, a Friday night youth event and a speaker bailed at the last minute. And so they were looking around and they said, hey, could you just share about how faith is like running a race? I was like, yeah, okay, I could probably do that. So, so I did that off relatively little prep and uh, it got really good feedback. And so then they, they had asked me, the, the leader leaders of the youth ministry had asked me to, to share again a little while later. And I did that. And then uh, around that time, the, the pastor asked me then to share on a Sunday morning. And at the time we were a very small church located in a rural part of uh, the Niagara region, great vineyards everywhere. So there wasn't a lot at stake. It was a, a small family church. It started in the, the mid, it started in 1980, actually. My family started attending in 83. But uh, around the mid nineties, the pastor retired and they had had some bad experience with search committees. And so, as I understand the story, the leadership of the church at the time had looked around the room and realized that in their private lives, in their businesses, they were all at the stage in their lives where they were starting to hand that family business over to their kids. And if that was option A in their private lives, why wouldn't they try that in the church? And so around the mid nineties, around 95, there was a young leader in our church named Chris Fowler, who was a worship leader guy. So a real maverick change agent. He was leading us through the the hymns to choruses, worship wars yep, of the day. I remember that kind of, time. You know, and, and so Chris at the time became the apprentice pastor of our church. And then eventually our pastor in working with him felt good enough to fully retire. And Chris became the, the pastor of our church. And so it was Chris that then asked me if, if I would share on a Sunday morning. And I did that a couple of times. And, uh, and then it was September of 97 that Chris had asked the board for help with the preaching and teaching load. And so there was another guy who'd been preaching a little bit since he was 18. He was the same age as me, whose parents were part of founding the church named Mike Krause. And he and I were actually invited on staff at that time, September of 97. So it's almost 25 years now. At first, we were hired to preach and teach twice a month each. But of course, one thing led to another and the two of us began preaching a lot more. And together with Chris kind of, took over the leadership of the church. Chris actually took a few years off and re-engaged after uh, a bit of a leave and uh, is still part of our church today, Mike as well. And we've been, basically the three of us have been uh, part of a core leading the church that we've grown up in since we were kids for the last quarter century. Hmm. So that's the longer story. Yeah. Well, so 25 years in it now, like that's a little while, especially at one church. Why do you keep at it? Why are you still 
doing the ministry work? Probably two things, Mike. I mean, first of all, I've, I've never, I never tried to be a pastor. I never had a resume to be a pastor. I never applied for a job to be a pastor. I was asked to contribute to my church. So kind of first things first, this is my church. This is the church mm. I've grown up in. This is my family. This literally is my extended family. My parents are part of our community. My in-laws are part of my community, our community, my brother, you know, my wife's some extended family. So, you know, not that the church is entirely, you know, inbred or don't, don't get any weird ideas, but it's, it's, this is my home church. So yeah. do I want to contribute to my home church? Yeah. I want to be a part of my home church and however the leadership of the church and however God leads in a way that I can add value to it, I want to do that. The, the other thing is kind of out of the, a deeper conviction when I was just starting to, to get into ministry. It was right around the time actually that Chris and the board were asking Mike and I to, to get involved on staff and preach and teach. And uh, I had a conversation with my dad and my dad, by way of background, was never really into faith or church. My mom was a pastor's kid. And so, you know, when we moved to this part of town, she was the one kind of dragging us to church all those years. And my dad always seemed to have a reason for not coming with us. And I was always confusing growing up as a kid, but finally in this, this conversation, you know, I'm talking to my dad about, you know, maybe working at the church and he was not terribly impressed. He felt like the church was probably abusing us at some point because we were putting so many hours in for so little money, whatever churches do that. We do that. So <laughs> you know how it works. And, and it, it finally created the moment where I could ask him like, dad, why aren't you into this? Like, this is bigger than just this potential job. Like, why are you into this? And he told me a story about his day at work that day. And my dad was a school administrator, like an elementary school administrator and worked in a part of the Niagara region that was a bit more Bible belty, the kind of school where parents would approach him in September and be curious, if not insistent, that their children were being taught by good Christian influences. Hmm. So they'd want to know, like, are the people teaching my kids Christians? And my dad never really knew how to answer that. And they'd ask him, well, are you a Christian? And my dad's answer at the time was, ask me in June. <laughs> Didn't really have anything else to say. So on this particular day, it was in the midst of a labor dispute with the teachers. And so as an administrator, my dad's job was to kind of mediate the, the picket line of these striking teachers. And on this day, as he tells me the story, these parents who were the same parents who in September would approach him and insist that their children were being instructed by these good Christian influences, they were driving by the picket line, throwing tomatoes at the striking teachers. And he looked at me, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he said, what would I want anything to do with that? Yeah. And I remember walking out of the, the kitchen, my parents' kitchen, their old house. And I remember feeling, I'm not a real defining moments guy, but I remember feeling like my life was going to be defined by one of two choices. Either I was going to completely agree with my dad that the church just does not make sense of Jesus. And because of that, give up on the whole thing right then and there. And in 30 years, probably be where my dad was. Or I could completely agree with my dad that as Gandhi says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And instead of abandoning it, give the very best of the rest of my life to trying to fix that or trying to close that, I call it now the Gandhi gap and 
try to make the church, if not just our church, make enough sense of Jesus that a guy like my dad could run to him instead of from him. And so I used to joke with the board at the time. I said, hey, I'll come work here. But the day my dad is baptized is the day that I retire because (laughs) my work will be done. And the neat part of the story is, you know, I, I didn't know that it would ever happen. It took four years. And after four years, I'm not crediting my ministry or anything, but um, after four years of him kind of paying a little more close attention to this, I got the chance to stand in the baptism tank with my own dad and hear him testify to Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and dunk my own father under the water. It was unbelievable, probably a highlight moment of my entire life. And at that point, kind of looked around the room and realized that there were other dads and other moms and other kids and other classmates and teammates and friends and neighbors and whatever that could have that same experience. And so I've kind of kept at it. And aside from it being my home church that I'm not planning on leaving, just getting to contribute the best of myself to what I understand matters most to God in the world Hmm. is something I would never not want to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the very thing that you describe is so often true and is is often one of the things that we experience of, like, that's why I want nothing to do with the church because the church is full of a bunch of people who, like, I, I was thinking as you were describing that, I've been, I'm the church I'm preaching at this weekend, I'm preaching for them on Jesus clearing the temple. Mm-hmm. So I've been doing a bunch of work and reading and studying on that and when he quotes Jeremiah seven as one of the things you've uh, uh, made my house a den of robbers. Right. And I think we've often misunderstood that. And when you get into Jeremiah seven, one of the things that's happening there is this indictment on the people of Israel who see the temple as this safe place for them while they go out and they're indicted on like not caring for the fatherless, not caring for the foreigner. Yeah. yeah the injustice. That, yeah, like they're not doing the work of justice. And then they and then they're like, but here's the temple, here's the temple, here's the temple. And so they've taken this sacred space and they've defamed it. And because like they think that just using the right sacred language and being in the right sacred place somehow gives them freedom to to do this other stuff. And like just been like, anyways, reflecting on how often the church becomes that for people of like here's this covering. And as long as I say the right things, do the right thing, show up in the right places, then I can act like an ass in these other places, like that there's this disconnect. So I'm so curious. I've said all that to say, like, I'm kind of curious about ways in which you have been able to help people overcome that, that gap, the, what you called the Gandhi gap. Like what are things that have been helpful at like beyond just shaming people and beyond just, right? Like, What have been things that have actually been helpful at bridging that? Because we, I have that within me to, to do that. Like what? Yeah. Help me walk through a little bit. So first of all, first of all, I would say, I don't believe this side of eternity that we're going to close that gap. And I say that maybe to excuse the fact that now 25 years into ministry leadership, I can't blame someone else anymore for the church that we are and the degree of gap that we currently have between who Jesus is and how we look and live. So I'm now responsible for that. 
And there are a whole bunch of new ways and emerging ways and newly revealed ways that we're discovering that that gap still exists and we're trying to kind of close that gap. And it's funny, I use that word a lot to describe my leadership style because my, my leadership style is just one big gap analysis where we'll have a, a leadership team retreat or a huddle or whatever. We'll say, what is the worst way that we fail to look like Jesus right now? And let's spend a season attacking that worst way and make it better so that the next season that won't be the worst way anymore, but there'll be a new worst way. There'll be something else now at the bottom of it. And let's try to clean that up. And that, that might not be, that might not be playing to our strengths as, as much as a strength-based leader might encourage. But anyways, it's kind of how we've rolled. And one of the, one of the most significant eras of that, to answer your question, Mike, is early on, I mentioned that both Mike and I kind of came to work with this next-gen leader who was primarily rooted in the, the musical worship stuff. He kind of led from the platform in that way. And so we kind of grafted in in the mid-90s in the era of church that was defining cultural relevance by contemporizing your worship service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you could do a radio song on a Sunday, like you were, you were it. And all of that was great. God used it and, and, you know, it was intended to get, especially people who were unchurched or far from God, you know, curious and in your door and whatever. And, and we saw that in the first few years of our ministry, we were growing like 35 or 40% year over year, over year, over year, and dealing with expansion issues and all kinds of stuff. Lots of, lots of cool stuff that in your mid twenties, you could brag about to your pastor buddies. Well, then a, a friend of ours, uh, who was at the time pastoring a church uh, in Western Canada in Calgary. He was home at Christmas and he, and he, he shared with us a book by a pastor out of Little Rock, Arkansas. And the basic, basic idea of the book was if your church up and disappeared, would anyone in your surrounding society even notice? And we went like overnight from thinking we were like the best church to wondering whether we were even a church hmm. because no, we were, we were so convicted and, and realize that one of the ways you close that gap is by being a community where people can see Jesus. And so that led us, kind of making a, a long story less long, it led us, instead of addressing some of the congestion issues at our own location, to leaving, selling it, and actually relocating and moving to about a mile from the downtown core of our city where we could reposition ourselves in proximity, not just to people, but to people on the margins, to people of need, and to actually become a social asset in our community. And so we spent a couple of years, thankfully, not assuming that we were like bringing Jesus to town, but assuming that Jesus was already at work in town. And we just wanted to kind of get with this program. It's like Henry Blackaby says, stop asking God to bless what you're doing and start seeing what God blesses and do it. So we partnered with a bunch of different ministries, got our people involved in a bunch of compassion and justice stuff, flexing some of those muscles that we had never, ever flexed before. And one thing led to another. And we ended up after a couple of years opening what for the last 17 years has been the largest homeless shelter in the entire Niagara region out of our church building. Hmm. And 
it was just remarkable and our people embraced it. And it's been just, you know, years of beauty in these unlikely friendships and like, so cool. I could talk for hours about it, but what was cool was after a couple of years of, of continuing to grow numerically, that was around the time that the multi-site movement became popular. And so we get kind of gave some thought to that thought, yeah, that'd be kind of cool to expand across the Niagara region. And so we started to have these public meetings about launching these other sites. And the first and the most consistent recurring question that came up was, hey, what will the homeless shelter equivalent at our location be? And it was like such an affirmation of the couple of years before reason for why we moved, because we wanted to be a presence. We wanted to actually incarnate Jesus tangibly, visibly, palpably, not just huddle in a room and theorize, talk about what it ought to look like to follow Jesus and then tell people to go on their merry way and live that way. We wanted to kind of operationalize his heart of love. And so what that meant was that from that point on, we saw multi-site differently. And instead of expanding our teaching platform, and instead of just expanding our worship gatherings, the primary reason we were becoming multi-site was to expand the, the, the footprint of Jesus and his difference-making capacity in our communities. And so we organized each of our new locations around what was essentially a, a homeless shelter equivalent that we now call an anchor cause. So each of our locations is organized more around its anchor cause of compassion and justice than it is about the service times or how teachings distributed or any of the typical gathering yeah. things. And in that way, it kind of represented the, the, the major shift of operationalizing from what you would in the vernacular refer to as a more attractional church to a more missional church. Today, to kind of complete the, the cycle, before we moved, if you would have looked at our operating budget, which church leaders will understand represents your, your priorities, there wasn't a single dime that we spent on compassion and justice ministry, not one cent. We actually had a Thanksgiving day offering, which in Canada, we celebrate Thanksgiving as well, just in October, not November. And uh, we had a Thanksgiving day offering, a second, like a special offering, you know, bonus offering for two denominational mission agencies. That's it. That's the only dollars we stewarded for anything related to compassion and justice stuff. This past uh, February at our AGM, we approved an operating budget where 71% of the dollars that we steward are invested into operationalizing compassion and justice activity and incarnating Jesus in the world. So yeah. the point being, if you, if you want to ask, like, how do we close the Gandhi gap? Start doing more things that allow people to see Jesus. I heard a pastor, California pastor, actually, he gave a riff on Acts 2 once when he said, like, how did the thousands become added to their number that, that each day? It's not by going to the temple. The, 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 the thousands didn't go to the temple. The temple was a thing that the, the disciples went to. And it probably wasn't by joining them in their homes. It says the, 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 the followers of Jesus were devoting themselves by meeting in each other's homes and sharing lives with great joy and sincerity of heart. It says it was probably through the selling of their possessions and the serving the poor because that was the one thing they could actually see. Hmm. And the phrase that he coined, I loved it. He said, their good deeds created a goodwill that opened people to the good news like never before. Their good deeds 
created a goodwill that opened people to good news like never before. And that probably more than anything has changed the profile of our local church in, in our part of the world. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I love about you, Jeff, is that in some ways you're doing the things that like a typical large church, you're one of the larger churches in Canada, and you're doing the things that a typical large church that we'd experience here in America would do, like multi-site and on and on. But the way that you are doing it is very different from the vast, like, I don't know another church that's doing multi-site churches that are based around like, uh, we're going to plant something here that's going to be based around a cause of justice and compassion that's specific to this community. And that's what we're going to birth everything out of like that. There's something so unique and different to me about that, that it's like on one level, it could from the outside of somebody structurally look the same, but it's actually very different. It's being played out very. Yeah. When you pay, like, I appreciate you, you noticing that I would feel like church leaders everywhere in, in all kinds of different contexts need to pay attention to two things, both the wine and the wine skin, both the wine and the wine skin. And what I find is larger churches tend to be better, or at least they're more seasoned in operationalizing stuff. They can systemize stuff. They can implement stuff. They can actualize stuff. But like I experienced when we were haunted by that question, if your church up and disappeared, would anyone even notice? Like we were operationalizing the wrong things. And when we stopped to say like, what life are we inviting people into? We're inviting people to essentially attend an event you know, be hyped up and go and live that out on their own, which God used and God can use and God still uses. And to some degree, we still do that. And some people relate to our church exclusively only in that way still, regrettably. But, but you know, when you think about what we're inviting people into, that isn't operationalizing the character of Jesus that isn't incarnating the presence of Jesus in the world. And so if your definition of church is like the word originally means the assembly of citizens, if it, if, if, if it means the gathering, well, then you operationalize the gathering. But if it means incarnating Jesus, then you incarnate Jesus. I say that because some church leaders are super clear and super nuanced and really beautiful around the wine, but they don't pay enough attention to how to operationalize that and how to involve other people and grow scale. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and you're actually missing out on the opportunity to incarnate Jesus to a greater degree in your community. Yes. But you can also pay attention to the wine skin and be super awesome at the branding and marketing and, you know, all of the systems and everything that can, that can draw people in and connect people in community. But you might be haunted one day, as I've been many times, as to the, the wine that you're actually building this on. That's so good. I love the way that you phrase that. Because it, it, I find in the consulting work that, that I do, like when I, I end up with churches, to use your language, that are really invested in the wine and that are really interesting and doing but they don't have, like, they haven't figured out how to build a structure around it or whatever. So I find that, like, when I'm working with a church like that, that my emphasis with them is, like, trying to build out some of that structure in ways that make sense and are appropriate and are helpful for, for what they're trying to do in that way. 
But I find, especially when I'm working with larger churches, churches that have been sort of gotten a lot from the church growth movement that have leaned in that direction. One of the ways that I often describe my work with them is I say, when they ask me if I'll come in and help them with stuff, I'll say, look, sometimes people are looking for somebody to come into their church and it's like you're playing golf and you're like, I just want to know how to play golf better. And can you help me play it better? And I tell them like, if that's what you want, I'm the wrong person. I'm not going to help you to do what you're doing better. But if you have this sense that maybe we've been playing the wrong game and the best thing for us isn't to get better at golf, but the best thing for us is to figure out what game we should be playing and to get good at that game, I said, I can help you figure that out. And some people just want to get better at golf and they just want to keep doing that. And that's great. And I think what's made that a bit easier for us, knowing that you know there are ways that what we've operationalized today makes it harder for us to shed that and do different more right things hmm. like that, that we're, we're, we're the product of that to some degree today. What helps us though, is if you think about the genesis of even my story and my sense of calling, we're always rooting this back to where's the gap, where's the gap. We're assuming there's a gap. Yeah. I'd and if, if I can imagine church leaders when they're relating to you, you know, they're going to access your consulting so that they can get better. I think there's a different urgency in improvement versus, no, we've got to fix a problem. When we've got to fix a problem, when the, when you're staring at a problem and you have to remedy a problem, that's a very different urgency than, yeah, we'd like to tweak the dials a little bit and see a bit more energy or a bit more life or a few more people or whatever. Improvement and I'm all for growth mindset and I don't want to, again, I don't want to just shame and, and, and uh, be too negative, but I think that there's a greater urgency and a greater willingness to not just tinker, but to like wholesale renovate when you're constantly staring at a problem, then thinking you don't have a problem and are just trying to improve. Yeah. 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 So what are the, what are the gaps that you are looking at right now or paying attention to now, or what are some of the ones that have been sort of recently on your radar that you all have been trying to pay attention to? One that we started to pay attention to about a decade ago had to do with gender. So when I got involved in ministry, I have a brother and a sister. My brother was a pastor with me for 16 years. He runs a real estate company. He chairs a bunch of boards, like he's a leader. My sister runs a Bible school in Japan. She's a leader. So I grew up assuming, even before I was theologized, I, I grew up assuming men and women lead. There are male leaders and there are female leaders. When we got involved in ministry, our church's theology generally embraced an egalitarian bent, at least. There was nothing really official. So we just kind of assumed that even though Chris had hired Mike and I and the three of us and some others, it kind of started as a cute little band of brothers that things would normalize. And actually, once I got involved in ministry leadership, we made our first three hires. Two of them were women and not for like secretarial roles. So we were, we were kind of evidencing that, hey, this is going to normalize. We're totally into you know, men and women leading together. Fast forward about 15 years. And what started out as this cute little band of brothers was now starting to feel like an impenetrable boys club Yeah, because yeah. at all of the senior levels, nothing had changed. Teaching frequency, composition of leadership groups, 
major influences. And as a result, culture biases, you know, nothing had changed. And uh, as God in his grace, you know, was loving us at the time, he connected us with a woman who had done a bunch of PhD work in Northern Ontario named Ellen Duffield. She has a website now called bravewomen.ca. And she came in and started consulting and giving us some, some, you know, real practical, again, like, like wine skin level strategies that we could employ to not only change our hearts, but to operationalize it a greater degree, both of increasing women and young girls confidence and changing the culture so that the environment of Southridge would be more commensurate for women to thrive. These days, in a lot of ways, we see a much greater degree of men and women leading together, leadership composition, employee engagement, like workplace culture, survey scores, these kinds of things. But that's still, Mike, uh, a huge issue for us. Our teaching composition is still predominantly male. And so we, we're continuing to, 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 to fail. Again, you're talking about a problem and a Gandhi gap. We're continuing to fail to expose our people to the fullness of both God's paternal and maternal heart hmm. and failing to connect and raise all of the image bearers, male and female, he created them. So, you know, that's, that's something that we've been working on for 10 years that we're continuing to pay attention to. Of course, you know, when you're opening homeless shelters and you're paying attention to gender equity and issues like that, like your sensitivity to marginalization now is something that you, you just can't unlearn. So, you know, LGBTQ inclusion, we have a ministry in the last few years called Becoming Good Relatives, which is all about creating better relationship and ultimately engaging in restorative work and reparations with First Nations people. We have in our Niagara as a, a, a demographic would uh, probably be more predominantly white, but it's not exclusively. And our church, I would say, is whiter even than the probably far whiter than the demographic of our community. So, you know, even addressing racial inequalities and the systemic racism that unintentionally is uh, you know, part of the community and part of the faith system that we find ourselves like these are some of the Gandhi gaps that we're staring at today that we would have had no idea about 20 years ago because there were bigger fish to fry. But today they're they're the they're the big issues that we're trying to correct. Yeah, those are the ones that are in front of you now. And if you, like you're mentioning, like leaning into areas that have led you to engage with people who are more marginalized, have you found like there are things that you've had to give up even like, gosh, I think of a leadership team that's a group of guys that have been together for a long time and then introducing women into that, it could feel to that group of guys like we're losing the way that we relate to each other, the way that our meetings sort of work? Like what, what are some of the things you feel like you've had to let go of? Absolutely. Over, over the last 10 years, to go from a leadership team of five or six guys to a leadership team of eight that has three or four women, it is different. I mean, numerically, it's different. Some of your friends, I, mean, I mentioned my brother. I worked with my brother as a senior leader on our team for 16 years, and he's not part of our team anymore. So, I mean, there's, 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 human relational pieces that you, you miss. And there's also there's, there's culture that you surrender, which is kind of the point Ellen Duffield in her research 
she describes this as the courts, she calls them, almost like uh, saltwater and freshwater fish, that there are different environments in which men and women thrive. And historically, if you see an outlier woman thriving, it's because they've learned how to thrive in a man's world. They've learned how to swim in the salt water, even though they're a freshwater fish. Well, as men, our leadership team is all about trying to cultivate a greater degree of the freshwater and embrace the behaviors where our female colleagues and friends and teammates, where they can thrive as opposed to just saying, hey, deal with it. We're here. Figure out how to swim in our water. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I love that I'm hearing from you in the way that you're approaching this, not only is like, we're constantly looking out for where these gaps are, trying to pay attention to that, lean into that. But then you're trying to figure out who are the voices that we need to be listening to that can not only that we can read, but that can come into our situation and say things to us that we need to hear and make adjustments based off of that. And then that like it's not an overnight deal, right, that you're thinking about ways like your language of like we're operationalizing these things like that. It's not an overnight change. And so there's constantly going to be a recognition that there's there's still this gap there that you're working on. But the whole framework of the gap is really fascinating. I think that's really helpful. Well, to me, I, I think that that's probably one of the one of the advantages of being homegrown in your community is you're really you're not going anywhere. At least in theory, I realize people leave their home communities, but you're you're the, the staying power. And maybe this is just the long distance runner background in me, but like the staying power allows you to engage in the slow work of cultural change. And I would argue like cultural change is the work of a spiritual leader. Like that's the work of a spiritual leader. When you talk about and preach about the kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven, like in the inside out way of Jesus, that starts with you and starts with the epicenter of your world, not just in your family, but like your team, your community, your leadership, your values, your ways of doing things, what you operationalize. And, and, and so if you, if you have that appreciation that, Hey, I'm not going to avoid the, the Patrick Lencioni labeled like the uncomfortable conversations about culture, all the touchy feely stuff, but I'm actually going to face that stuff square on. Like that's, that's the deeper, like more significant work of, of ushering in the reality of the kingdom of God on, on earth as it is in heaven. And the other part that, that I, I love is, is the, so what part. So many of us in church leadership, and maybe it's because of the way that the system trains ministry leaders. So it's more academic or more maybe preaching Bible centered. I don't know what, but when you, you come back to the wine and the wine skin, like many times we're better at articulating or nuancing or even conversing about the wine than saying, okay, so how do we, how do we, how do we realize that in our community and do the wine skin operationalizing work? What I love about our community is that we'll never stop at the what. We'll always push the conversation to the so what. So if the what is, you know, a cute little band of brothers has now become an impenetrable boys club. Okay, that's the what. So what? Right? And, and the question demands some practicality and some operationalizing of something, some application or implementation to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, you're doing work with, with leaders, with church leaders in an organization that you've created called Leaders Village. Do you mind 
sharing just a little bit about that as we kind of close out our time here, what that looks like, what you're doing there, how people get involved with that? Yeah. So I actually, for years, have been involved outside of just our local church in the leadership development world for leaders, in particular church leaders, through the Global Leadership Network. Many of you in the U.S. are, are familiar with the, the Global Leadership Summit out of Willow Creek Church. And I've been involved in that for years and have chaired the board of the GLN in Canada for probably a, a decade now. So this has always been kind of on my heart to do, to invest in more than just our local church. And again, try to give the, the best of, of Jesus' investments in me to what he cares about most in the world. The Leaders Village, though, has emerged for a couple of reasons. Number one is that it seems like these larger church movements are either paying less attention to specifically the work of the local church than they used to, or they're paying a different kind of attention, speaking to maybe a different kind of church or different kind of values than what a Southridge is trying to become. There aren't a lot of like macro movements that are speaking to how to operationalize compassion and justice. There aren't a lot of macro church leadership development conferences and, and, and movements and even voices talking about how to you know, launch anchor causes or befriend the marginalized and experience mutuality or you know, close the gap on gender, or LGBTQ inclusion or race, things like that. So what we tried to do as a local church was consolidate all of the leadership development stuff that we were doing internally and, and essentially make it a ministry. So the Leaders Village at one level is just trying to raise the profile of leadership development at Southridge. At the same time, to try to share and steward some of our innovations and be a bit of a leadership development contributor as Southridge. Uh, we've got a website now, leadersvillage.ca. As a bit of a spiritual practice exercise through COVID, I wrote a book called Finding Our Way, which is all about the Southridge story and our approach to ministry. And so these kinds of things, we've got a podcast every week that we release and you know, a few different resources that we're trying to just steward with the, the broader community to help resource this unique approach to ministry. And, and then you know, value number three in raising the profile of leadership development at Southridge and raising the profile of leadership development as Southridge, we want to partner with other leaders, churches, ministries, and agencies to do numbers one and two better together than we could alone because we believe that it takes a village to raise a family and it specifically takes villages to raise spiritual families and especially the parents of those spiritual families, which coming full circle is really where you and I met because we were part of a, a cluster that you were forming with a bunch of church leaders to a large degree who were feeling the aloneness of not just local church leadership, but the local church leadership of unique kinds of wine and wineskins. And so that's what Leaders Village exists to do. Love it. Love it. Jeff, thanks so much for taking some time today. It's super fascinating. I had not heard you talk about that that gap approach to ministry. I'm super fascinated by that. I think um, I'm going to be I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. So thanks for hanging out today. Mike, I appreciate you and I appreciate your friendship and hope this isn't the last time we can hang out. Yeah, me too. Thanks. Thank you.